You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. Well, I've got a lot of things I want to do today. We'll see how far we get. Um, number one is the advanced stats stuff. Number two is different kinds of advanced stats stuff. And then number three, I want to take a peek around the NFL and see what's going on and see if there's any way to summarize what the heck is going on. I kind of started to do that yesterday just by looking at, you know, different things, but uh, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. So I want to try to go through the PFF stuff kind of quickly, if at all possible. So let's just get started offensively. Really only, well, depends on where you want the cutoff to be. Three people were 70 or higher on offense. Aaron Rodgers, Romeo Dobbs, and Randall Cobb. Alan Lazard was a 69.1. Tyler Davis, 68.4. You know, maybe you want to sneak him in there. I don't know. Uh, Randall Cobb was the only guy that had a really good grade, which was an 81.8. The crazy thing is, that's not even his highest grade in the last two weeks. <laughs> his last two weeks, he's had a grade of 85.3 and 81.8. He's uh, got a 77.6 overall grade because of his kind of slow start week one. But um, let me look at it. just because I know it's only two weeks, but considering he's not done... When is the last time he's had weeks like this? Last year, he had two big games. Week four, he had a 90.5 overall grade. Week 12, an 87. So he had two all year. Granted, they were both higher, but still, just two. 2020, yeah, I mean, he that was with Houston. He had kind of kind of a back-to-back, 77 and 82, so I guess it's not that unusual. Anyways, just because it's fun and because I'm a homer and because I want to do this, let's take a look at the best wide receivers of the last two weeks, shall we? I think it's fair to cut out week one, considering the fumble out of the gate. I said what I said. Third highest receiving grade uh, the last two weeks, Mr. Randall Cobb. LaVisca Chenault is number one. Devontae Smith, number two. Randall Cobb, number three. Also just third overall. Same exact order, same exact guys. Last two weeks, he actually grades higher than Amon Ross St. Brown, so stick that in your eye socket. Sammy Watkins, uh, 13th, but that's obviously based on his one game because he wasn't in this one, but still, burn. After that, you got Romeo Dobbs, 37th. Just one spot behind Equinemius St. Brown, who is the only bear inside the top 50. I'm just, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Anyways, let's continue on. Um, suboptimal, below 60, Amari Rogers, 59, Mercedes Lewis, 56, Robert Tunyon, 55, Aaron Jones, 55, Josiah DeGuara, 54, Juwan Winfrey, 54, A.J. Dillon, 54, Yash Nyman, 53, and then John Runyon is the guy in the gutter with a 46 overall grade. So, I'm not always seeing eye to eye with PFF as far as what I thought I saw and what they say, but I feel like this lines up pretty well. I told you the narrative is going to be the wide receivers didn't do well, Aaron Rodgers didn't play well, and really it's not that. It's the fact that the offensive line couldn't really block. That's not necessarily true of everybody. I know everyone's doing victory laps about Bakhtiari. He was fine. He had a 78 overall pass blocking grade. Pretty mediocre for Bakhtiari. And that was the highest. He also had a 55 run blocking grade. The only guy who had a decent run blocking grade was Elton Jenkins, and he had a 53 pass blocking grade. So there was nobody on the offensive line that just did a good job across the board. 
The closest, honestly, would probably be Jake Hansen in his three total snaps with a 74 pass blocking grade and a 60 run blocking grade. It wasn't good enough. Speaking of Mr. Aaron Rodgers, 77.1 completion percentage, which is actually quite high. His adjusted completion percentage was 82.4. Only one big-time throw. Uh, Again, doesn't really surprise me, considering he threw past, like, five yards maybe, what, three times? (laughs) I know that's not true, but it it just felt like every pass was within five yards. Turnover-worthy plays, obviously he had a pick that was his fault, in my opinion, so that would be a turnover-worthy play. 2.4 seconds is his average time to throw, a passer rating of 103.9. He was pressured on 11 of his dropbacks. That's 11 out of 36, so roughly a third, which is quite high. Rodgers was uncharacteristically good while under pressure, which is good because he was under pressure a lot with a 70 overall grade. Unfortunately, only a 67 overall grade while he was kept clean. So I think that, I don't know, this is just a theory, but I think that kind of is characteristic of Rodgers. If you have a team that's pressuring him a lot, it's almost as if every play is when he's under pressure. He starts getting jittery. The ball just has to come out, right? That clock just goes down to about 2.5 seconds in his head. And if it hits 2.49, he just launches it into, you know, into space. Don't think there's anything extra interesting about the receiving stuff. Uh, Randall Cobb did have a 3.17 yards per route run. Romeo Dobbs, 2.15. Both of those are pretty remarkable. Running backs. We know that things were not great. 2.7 yards per carry for Dylan, 3.0 for Aaron Jones. Yards after contact per attempt, A.J. Dillon just 1.83. Usually that's closer to like three, three and a half. Same with Aaron Jones. He was at 2.42. Aaron Jones made three people miss, A.J. Dillon zero. Again, you kind of, if you think back to the game, that probably makes sense. A.J. Dillon doesn't really even try to make people miss. It seems like he just kind of is plowing into people. And I hate to keep hammering on Dylan. Because I know he's a good running back, and I don't want this to spiral into an anti-Dylan thing, which is kind of what some of my tweets are blowing up into on Twitter. I just say a thing, and everyone like piles on, like, yeah, I've always hated that guy. He's a bum. And it's like, all right, just let's calm down. It's not what I'm, not what I'm saying or anything. It's one game. And in fact, the whole point of what I'm saying is this is uncharacteristic. But zero missed tackles forced for Dylan. Seven yards was his longest, 10 for Jones. They were both also given really low receiving grades. A.J. Dillon, 37.5. He had the one drop. Uh, Aaron Jones had a receiving grade of 40. However, both did have very high pass blocking grades, so that's nice. And then speaking of blocking, um, highest pass blocking grade goes to Aaron Jones. Then you got A.J. Dillon, or excuse me, Bakhtiari, then Dillon. Then Jake Hansen, again, only uh, two pass blocking reps, but still. Mercedes Lewis was the next highest, which is good. He's kind of been struggling a little bit but at least he's got the pass blocking this game then josh myers with a 71.5 those are the only positive the average blocking grades robert tunyon and alan lazard negative blocking royce newman elton jenkins john runyon and then bad blocking yash nyman 45 josiah DeGuara 40 tyler davis 33.9 pass blocking grade run blocking only one good one again elton jenkins royce was kind of up there with a 67 and then it was just a whole bunch of average all the way down the line the bad run blockers john runyon 45 overall grade alan lazard 43 robert tunyon 42 and then aj Dillon 38.9 as far as the statistics go um david bakhtiari allowed just one hurry in the game left guard john runyon allowed zero pressures center josh myers one hurry um Right guard Royce Newman had the most statistically, not the lowest grades, but he gave up a sack, a hit, and a hurry. Three total pressures. Um, and then right tackle Elton Jenkins. Uh, he had, Well, same amount of pressures. He gave up three hurries. So the right side of the line, obviously, was the biggest issue as far as guys actually getting to Aaron Rodgers. Other pressures given up. Tyler Davis gave a pressure up. Uh, and I think that's it. Just Tyler Davis. Defense. Devontae Wyatt, yes, only seven snaps, but a 90.7 overall grade. It might be silly to kind of get upset or to get excited about it, but it's no more silly than being upset about the fact that he started with a 54 and then a 43. You know what I mean? The point is he played really well, and it was a 90.7 pass rush grade. Five of his seven attempts were pass rush. He had one pressure on his five attempts, which is, you know, 20%. That's that's obviously high, but clearly you're not going to get a 90 because you just had one pressure. So I'm excited to go back and find the times he actually played, especially those five pass rush reps, and see what the heck got PFF so excited because a 90 is a huge deal and a very rare thing that they hand out. I think Kenny Clark is the only defensive tackle with a 90 overall grade in the entire NFL right now as far as, you know, overall. 
So despite three bad weeks, it brought him up to a 66 overall grade and a 77.8 pass rush grade. So hopefully it's not a fluke. Obviously in five snaps, you can get some fluky stuff going on, but uh, he was having a good day for sure. After that, you got just freak of the universe, Kenny Clark, 87.4 overall grade. Uh, He's just getting better every single week. This is a little bit more of a well-rounded game. Uh, Week one, 70 overall grade. He had a 90 pass rush, but a 40 run defense. Week two, 90 pass rush, 59 run defense. Then week three, 78 pass rush, 71 tackling, 73 run defense, 87.4 overall. It was actually his highest overall grade because everything just kind of worked. But he's still got a 91 overall grade for the season as a pass rusher. He's never had that. His highest pass rush grade that he's had at the end of the season was an 88.8 in 2018. Not saying he's going to be able to maintain that. This was his uh, lowest pass rush production in terms of pressures, where he had three pressures on 40 attempts, but he did have the two sacks to bring him up to three total, which is, I think, where Rashawn's at right now. They're, they're both at one sack per game, I think, which is a heck of a track to be on, man. I think Preston's got two, so eight just between those three guys in three games, eight sacks. That's, uh, that's not bad, man. Pretty good haul. Um, so 87.4 overall for Kenny. Then it drops off a little bit, but still solid grades for Eric Stokes with a 75.9. Definitely needed that. Um, Stokes, I, I've been real excited about watching him play because he he he's a tryhard. You know, he's not afraid. He's not standing back. He's trying to go after people. Maybe a couple missteps here and there, but uh, 56 overall grade, then a 60 overall grade. But uh, this week, it all came together. The coverage has not been that bad. Just, you know, the run defense and tackling and stuff was pretty rough against Chicago. But similar to Kenny, 76 coverage, 72 tackling, 64 run defense, all culminated into him having a a real good day. Uh, Razul Douglas right there with him, 75.3. Pretty similar grades across the board. A little bit better tackling, a little bit better coverage, but slightly worse run defense, which, I mean, again, who who cares? I mean, if we're going to actually rank these guys, Razul is ahead of Stokes based on that, but it doesn't matter. He played well. And then Dean Lowry is the last guy with a 71.5 overall grade, perpetually underrated Packer on this team that, um, you know, two weeks in a row, he's in the 70s. Still, nobody cares. Nobody likes him. <laughs> I don't know. It's whatever. The bad guys, Keyshawn Nixon, surprisingly, with a 55.8. Again, it's a consistency thing. L- let me remind you of something. And the reason I've said that consistency is what matters for PFF is because it, it dawned on me the way that this system works. It's a two-point scale, and it goes in 0.5 increments. So it's kind of like a, I guess, like a four-point scale or whatever. It doesn't matter. But the point is, it's not a 100-point scale. I think the way somebody asked me, because Quay Walker is actually the lowest graded on the entire defense, and somebody said, well, didn't he get that punch out, that that's fumble? Yes, in 55 snaps, one of them was that. I think if fans were to grade players, they would do it on like a 10-point scale or higher. And the way it would work is a typical play, you get like one, two, three points. But if you get a punch-out fumble recovery that goes the other way and you end up getting points off of it, that's like a 10-point deal or like a pick six. It, It would skew much heavier toward big plays, and Quay would be much higher than he is. Same with Keyshawn Nixon. He had some really big plays, and it would go... PFF doesn't operate that way. The best you can do is a two-point play. So Quay Walker and his uh, one fumble recovery is probably, or, or forced fumble is probably two points. But when you play 55 snaps, it's pretty easy to erase two points, right? So again, the way that their particular system works, it's about consistency. If you have 0.5 every single snap over 55 snaps, you know, you get like a positive 27. If you're negative half the time, you know, say you get like a negative one on half your plays or, you know, say 80% of your plays, you've got negative 44 and then 11 huge, massive, amazing plays, which of course nobody has 11 massive plays, but that's only, you know, times two. So that's 22. Well, what's 22 minus 44? You're still negative. Even though, you know, 20% of your plays were big, huge, massive plays. You're negative by a pretty wide margin. So again, it's, it, this is the, the problem with the grading system is that it's entirely subjective in terms of how you weight things. That's the biggest issue with this. It's the biggest issue a lot of people have, and especially with fans, is that they don't weight heavier. Big play. If you have one big play, you should be, you know, I mean, because look at Razul Douglas. We won the game based on his pick. 
dude's going to get a game ball. Now, I don't know what his grade was. It was probably pretty high because I think he might have had multiple picks in that game, but it's not impossible for him to have a really low grade despite that. Well, teams are fans are going to riot. He literally won us the game. You should get a high grade. Well, that's not how it works. So I'm not telling you to like their system. I'm just explaining how that's possible and, and why it happens so much with PFF because it's just a two-point scale. So yes, Keyshawn Nixon, 55. Preston Smith, 55. Really surprising day for him. I thought he had a pretty good day. Zero pressures for Preston. Uh, he did have that big play blowing it up in the backfield and everything, but pretty uncharacteristically low, low day for him. Darnell Savage continues to live in the gutter. Uh, 51.8 overall grade. Hasn't had a good day yet. Um, and um, fourth lowest graded safety in the NFL right now. Then Jonathan Garvin, you know, I haven't watched him a ton, but every time I see him, I don't like seeing him. I don't like what he does. <laughs> so not surprised by his 45.9. Jair Alexander, only six snaps, and he gave up that one reception. So that's obviously going to skew pretty negative. I don't know what the rest of the grades were, but we'll give him a pass on that one. And then again, Quay Walker, 36.3 overall grade. His tackling was fine. They gave him a 45 coverage grade. If it's, honestly, I believe that was because of the final drive. He, was, he wasn't targeted all day, and I thought he did a great job in coverage, which, you know, he, he probably got like a 60 because it means nothing, because he flew out of the gate and went right over to Fournette, and they would never throw to him. Down the stretch, though, remember when they kept throwing to Fournette and they were saying it was a busted coverage? I don't know that it was Quay, but he was covering him all day long. And then they go in the hurry up. The defense doesn't know what they're doing. Fournette's running wide open. He gets his 24-yard scamper because somebody's not paying attention. I'm pretty sure that was Quay. And they went like back-to-back Fournette and back-to-back blown coverages for Fournette. I don't know that it was Quay. I'm just saying I know he was the guy on him all day. Then they gave him a 33 run defense grade. I honestly don't hate that. I know some people are real excited saying he's doing a great job. I went back back and watched. It wasn't the all-22 or anything, but I don't know. I mean, he just, he's there. I haven't seen him really do anything. He kind of just like runs into the pile and then the somebody else makes a tackle and that's about it. So, you know... I don't dislike him. I mean, he's obviously fast. He's obviously violent and physical and everything, but it kind of just seems like he maybe doesn't know exactly what he's doing. He also has zero pressures on 11 attempts. Remember when I told you that linebackers typically have really high pressure rates? Like if you're in the 20s, 25%, it's not that unusual for a linebacker. He has zero out of 11. I do know he was very close on one of them, but Brady got the ball out of his hand in like 0.2 seconds. But... um, yeah, I mean, it's just there's really nothing doing for Quay so far. I, I, again, I don't dislike anything. I don't think he, like, blew the game or anything like that. Again, we don't win if it wasn't for his big punch out and everything, so we're all content with what he did. I just think he's got some some more room to grow. And I don't think he's going to grade out very well as he is right now because it's it's a lot of sort of inconsistency stuff. But again, I don't think we super care. I mean, he's he's not blowing the game. When he's covering somebody, I think he does a great job. When he's squared up and can tackle somebody, he smokes them. Um, I think he's going to be making some plays. I just think there's going to be some bumps along the way, which, again, I don't know that we super care. Total pressures. Rashawn with three. Kenny with three. Devontae Wyatt with his one on only five attempts, which is impressive. Dean Lowry had one on 19. I should tell you how many. Three of 32, which is actually quite low for Rashawn. It's sub 10%. Three of 40 for Kenny, which is really low. One of five for Devontae, one of 19 for Dean, which is not bad, I guess. Um, I mean, it's not good, but you're you're kind of at the point where it's either one or two. Jaron Reed had one on 36, which is obviously quite poor. And then Adrian Amos had one pressure on one attempt, so that's pretty fantastic. We brought him, which we never, we don't usually bring Adrian Amos on a blitz, but he ended up getting a hit on the quarterback with his one blitz. And then, and then the sacks, Kenny Clark had two, and Rashawn Gary had one. Missed tackles. PFF only accounted two missed tackles in this entire game. Both of them were Devondre Campbell. Um, stops, you know, tackles, negative play for the offense. Quite a few of them. Three for Razul, three for Devondre, three for Kenny, two for Keyshawn Nixon, two for Rashawn Gary, one for Stokes, one for Dean, one for Amos, 16 total. Force fumbles, Keyshawn Nixon, Koi Walker. Then when we get to coverage, the most targeted was Devondre Campbell. 11 targets, 9 receptions, uh, 68 yards, and a pass breakup. Again, not the worst day in the world. I know it's he was getting picked on a little bit, but he also had like slot receivers coming across that he was supposed to be responsible for. So it was nearly impossible situations. I don't want to make excuses, but I mean, it's kind of like when I'm looking at offensive linemen and one guy succeeds and one guy fails. 
but the guy that fails was your right tackle who's supposed to reach the linebacker, which is never going to happen. And it's like, I mean, the play blew up technically because you failed, but also nobody's going to do that. So I, I, yeah, it's your fault, but I don't know how to blame you for that. Uh, Keyshawn Nixon, nine targets, eight receptions, 81 yards, probably explains a little bit of his grade. That's a lot. Uh, Razul Douglas, eight targets, five receptions, 41 yards, and a pass breakup. Darnell Savage, five targets, two receptions, eight yards, but he gave up a touchdown. Quay Walker, three targets, three receptions, 48 yards. Adrian Amos, two targets, two receptions, eight yards. Eric Stokes, one target, one reception, six yards. Jair Alexander, one target, one reception, 12 yards. Special teamers, uh, four of them had pretty good grades, which is great for a Packers special teams unit. Usually you get maybe one at like a 71 overall grade. But Dallin Levitt, again, showing up, 70.7. Isaiah McDuffie, 72. Quay Walker, 72.9. And Keyshawn Nixon, 76.8. Again, with Rudy Ford, I don't really care what they say about the guy. I'm super excited he's here. (laughs) I love what he's doing. I think he got dinged because he was penalized on that play. Um, So it cost him quite a bit. And there's only 17 snaps. I've noticed that when guys get penalized, it causes problems. But he had his one tackle, and he's always down the field. So, you know, this this is a PFF can do whatever they want with their grades, but I like Rudy Ford, and I'm glad he's on our special teams unit. That's all I know. Only one guy was uh, really low, and that's Tipa Nalii. But, again, I think that was because of his one penalty, and obviously it was very consequential in terms of the result of that penalty and then, you know, the result of the very next penalty that pushed it way back. But... Considering he didn't actually do anything wrong and he was held and thrown into the kicker and it was just a bad call, um, I'm just going to ignore that grade as well. So there you go. That's that's more or less the grades and everything that PFF had to say about it. That's what it's about. Right, Goose? You know what's up. Anyways, with that said, why don't we go ahead and take a break, right, Shia? I got a big special thank you shout-out thing I got to do here. This is how I talk when I'm delaying and trying to, you know, pull something up. But thank you very much to Mr. Motorcycle for jumping in on Patreon, as well as Char808. I really cannot express to you how much that means uh, to be able to get that support. still amazing to me to this day that I just talk about football and people care that much about it, you know? Because <laughs> that's all I'm doing, is talking football. But uh, no, it, it, it really means means everything to me so i appreciate that you guys thank you very much if you're looking for something else to support other than me you know like a good cause or something as opposed to you know this cause fertile ground ranch discipleship ministry also known as fertilegroundranch.org uh, it's my dad's ministry that he just began he bought some property down in southern indiana it's a place for uh people that are a little down and out on their luck maybe just getting out of prison maybe just uh, getting into recovery and they just kind of need to unplug from the world and get away they'll have a place to live They'll have a place to work, place to eat, and uh, we'll be brought through all kinds of um, discipleship materials that my dad has been learning and studying over many, many years. Uh, he's been working with people for different reasons for a long time. He had people help pull him out of pretty dark places, and now he's helping other people do that. So please check out FertileGroundRanch.org. Let me take the marbles out of my mouth so you get the website right. FertileGroundRanch.org. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. 
So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. All right, so to start things off, let's real quick run through some of the stuff that Matt LaFleur talked about today. Does not have an update on David Bakhtiari, uh, but he did say he did a good job, which I'll be honest, I went back and watched. My plan was I'm going to chart it. I'm going to, you know, just just not, I don't know, it seems arrogant or whatever to be like, I'm going to grade these guys. I tried that. It's really hard, and I don't know what I'm doing. But I just wanted to be able to remember, you know? If I say, hey, that was a bad play by so-and-so, and then 10 plays later, I have no idea who did what or how many times or misremember things. So I just wanted to write it all down. I didn't get through it. It was kind of getting to the point where I was just getting, I was realizing I was spending way too much time trying to do things that I couldn't quite do. But anyways, all that to say, David looked really good to me. Uh, I know PFF kind of gave him a so-so run blocking grade or whatever. I thought run blocking and pass blocking, and I only watched like the first half when obviously the offense was really cooking. So things could have devolved pretty rapidly after that. But yeah, run blocking and pass blocking, he looked top tier. And then immediately after David Bakhtiari went out, Yash Nyman's first play of the game, Aaron Jones gets tackled on the far right side of the line because the guy Yash is supposed to be blocking ends up going from the left side all the way to the right side to make a play. I mean, it was it was like clockwork. I don't mean to, to dump on Yash Nyman, but the drop-off from Bakhtiari to Yash, even on, on Bakhtiari's first return, was made evident in the very first play that, that Nyman went on the field. So very excited to get him back to full-time. I, you know, we're, I know we're trying to talk about we got to knock off the rust on Elton. Elton, I thought, looked really bad. Um, again, PFF didn't necessarily agree, saying I think he had a good run-blocking grade or whatever. Um, he had some tough assignments. They keep asking him to try to reach linebackers, but just in general, it's kind of, I don't know. He's, he's still got some rust there. <laughs> it's, it's looking pretty rusty for, for Elton from what I saw, but Bakhtiari looked incredible. Uh, did say he's not sure about that rotation thing. I honestly don't mind. I'd love him to be out there full time, but Yash is good enough that if, if he's playing 25, 30, 40, 50% of the time, whatever, you know, if, if it, if it means keeping Bakhtiari fresh through the season, I'll, I'll get over it. Um, there was some question brought up about, um, am I recording? Yes. About, I did an update on my recording software here and it's really stupid the way that it is. So I can't actually see if it's recording. Anyways, it doesn't matter. You don't care about that. Some question about what are you going to do with Yash? Because, you know, he's, he's earned his stripes and he's a good player. Are you actually going to bench him, you know, once Bakhtiari comes back to full time? And I, th- I think the real question is, would we move Yash Nyman to right tackle? Some people said leave him at left tackle, put Bakhtiari at right. I think that's absolutely psychotic and it will never happen. But putting Yash Nyman at right tackle and then moving um, Elton Jenkins into guard, I, I don't know where I stand on that. I don't think it's going to happen, first of all. Um, I, I do think Yash, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if you're if you're talking best five, I do think that is the best five. I, I I think Yash is a better player than Royce, but I do think we overinflate Yash a little bit. I think he's problematic, and it's at a a pretty premier position. But you know, if if the issues continue with Elton, maybe it would be a good idea to slide him into guard. I I don't know. I don't know. But Matt Lafleur did say that it's a question that they are considering. You know, they've mentioned they want to get their best five out there. So it's going to come down to that. I would assume it's going to stay as is. I, I think it'll be Bakhtiari and um, Elton Jenkins with Royce in at right guard would be my assumption. Um, you reiterated that it was the defense and the special teams, but but kind of highlighted the tackling, which was a problem in Chicago. So, I mean, that that is really cool. You know, tackling can be kind of a big issue. You know, either, either you got it or you don't kind of thing. The whole it's a mentality. To turn that around in one week, you know, it's kind of same with special teams. Week one, it was it was looking bleak. It was looking bad. And now all of a sudden, week three, I'm thinking, this is a, I mean, not just, you know, not horrible. This is at least a mediocre special teams, if not a pretty good one. Um, so kudos to them for uh, getting that figured out. Also, very important update. They are no longer called gunners. Apparently, they call them flyers on special teams, which I'm going to have a hard time getting adapted to. I don't know. Why do they do that? I don't understand. If that's because gun is too, quote-unquote, triggering, I'm going to lose my mind. It's hilarious that it's triggering, but why are, we, why are we changing names to stupid stuff? Why can't it be a gunner? Always got to change stuff. 
And then I got to be that guy who 20 years from now is like, he's a good gunner. Like, what's a gunner? I never heard of a gunner. You still call it a gunner? What are you, 70? Well, kind of. I don't know. Maybe they shouldn't have changed it. Stupid. Flyers. Okay, they're flyers now. There you go. It does make more sense than gunner, but still, you called it a gunner. Just leave it alone, man. You made a bad choice. Live with it. I don't know. Um, he was asked about Sammy Watkins' injury. He said, I, Matt LaFleur said, I feel awful about that because I feel like we probably pushed our guys a little too hard in that regard, coming off a physical game, a night game. He's done everything in his power to be in great shape, and he is in great shape. Um, I know a lot of people are going to scoff at that, but if you think about it, there were a lot of injuries that just came out of nowhere. You know, uh, Christian didn't play in this game. A lot of, he referenced, uh, I think a little later in here, soft tissue injuries and things like that. And um, it definitely doesn't sound fake. You know, sometimes they say like, oh, that's my fault. Don't, don't give him a hard time. But, you know, when, again, when a bunch of injuries crop up, maybe there's something to that a little bit. He did go on to, here's the thing I was thinking of. He, he went on to say he's reevaluating everything about his practice workload after what he deemed too many soft tissue injuries. I asked him if any of that relates to moving padded practice to Wednesday. He wouldn't say yes, but definitely not no. He said, that's definitely crossed my mind. So good to get this stuff squared away because it's not good to, you know, you go in, you win a game, you're feeling good, and then that first injury report comes up and it's like, what the heck is this? I thought everybody was fine. What is going on? Uh, LaFleur was fairly optimistic about wide receiver Christian Watson's hamstring injury not being serious and that he was hopeful to get him back soon. He said Watson's injury had different origins than Watkins, whatever that means. Uh, Matt LaFleur says Romeo Dobbs has shown a ton of potential as a rookie. He's got the body movement skills. He's got the explosiveness. He plays on his instep, gets both feet in the ground, and that allows him to get off bump coverage. The game is certainly not too big for him, he says. Uh, Zach Cruz on Twitter made a list of all the different things that Matt LaFleur said about Romeo Dobbs today. Body movement skills, explosiveness, uh, bump coverage, game isn't too big for him, ton of potential, not even close to his ceiling, versatile, can play ZXF, knows the concepts, cares about the game, gives great effort. Again, like I've said about this whole Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs thing, they know they have something in these guys. There's no question about it, especially Dobbs in terms of the, the comments that have been made but they know that that there's potential here to be utilized. Anyways, speaking of Mr. Romeo Daubs, as we used to call him back when back when he was cool, I wanted to look at some stuff because I had heard about all this, you know, nobody's caught in eight passes since Randall Cobb. Did I say cotton? Oh, sorry. Sometimes I say stuff. Um, since Randall Cobb in 2018, other than Devontae or whatever, eight, eight, receptions anyways i wanted to kind of dive into that and and take a look rookie receivers you may have seen this on twitter rookie receivers for the green bay packers with eight receptions the record first of all is max mcgee as a rookie he caught nine receptions in 1954 six rookies have had eight receptions as a rookie all of them just one time billy houghton in 1952 had uh eight receptions Boyd Dowler in 1959. Then you got to jump all the way to the 80s. Uh, Jerry Ellis, eight receptions in 1980, November 30th. Keith Woodside, November 20th of uh, 1988. And then Sterling Sharp, 1988, November 20th. Same day, same year, same rookie class. Keith Woodside and Sterling Sharp each had eight receptions. After that, you have to jump all the way to 2022 and Romeo Dobbs. That's pretty shocking. Some of the other guys in the receptions they had, I'm just looking since 1990 because I don't want too big of a list, but um, Greg Jennings had six. Ruvel Martin had seven, also in 2006. Uh, 2007, James Jones had six. Ryan Grant had six. Eddie Lacy in 2013 had six receptions. Devontae Adams had a bunch of different games, obviously not surprising, but it was 6, 7, 6, and 7. That would be in uh, 2014. Jamal in 2017 had 7. MVS had 7 and 6 in 2018. And then again, Romeo Dobbs with 8. Just to kind of show the, the differences between these guys. You want to know something else that's interesting about Romeo Dobbs? In the first three weeks for a rookie wide receiver, Lee Morris leads the team for his 1987 season in his first three games with 16 receptions. The only other two with 14 or more are James Jones and Romeo Dobbs with 14 receptions. 
This is in Green Bay Packers history. Devontae didn't do it. I think he had seven in his first three games. Sterling Sharp didn't do it. Jordy, Randall, nobody did it. And then even looking at receiving yards. Through three weeks, Romeo Dobbs ranks 10th in Green Bay Packer history for yards. A lot of these guys, as you would imagine, are, um, well, maybe you wouldn't imagine, but from kind of a long time ago. Again, Billy Houghton from 52, Lee Morris in 87, Don Hudson in 1935, James Lofton in 1978, Jeff Query in 89, Clive Rush in 1953. But a couple notable names, James Jones and Greg Jennings uh, are on the list. I know we're probably overreacting to basically one big game, but it's just trying to put it into perspective. Well, most of these numbers are numbers because the Packers haven't really invested in rookie receivers and don't play them a lot. Especially today, as much as receivers come in and are ready to go, these numbers are pretty paltry. I mean, just in fact, with this own rookie class, I mean, he's like fifth in some of these numbers just among 2022 rookies. But just trying to give you some perspective on the start that he has, because a lot of times we try to compare him to just other NFL players. And um, he's not, he's a rookie. And to be thrust into this high of a level, to be given that prominent of a role just three weeks in, I mean, I, I, again, I don't think it's unfair to say he's our, and I know, I know he'll never get this official designation, our number one wide receiver. I don't know that he isn't. I think, uh, you know, nine, nine games out of 10, maybe eight guy, games out of 10, if Romeo Dobbs and Alan Lazard are running the same amount of routes, I'd be willing to bet if nothing else, Romeo Dobbs is open more. And probably more often than not, Rodgers is going to end up throwing it to him more like he did in this game. Not to mention just the amount of times they're going to have schemed passes to him, like the screens, just because of his athleticism. So, I mean, the only thing that's limiting his upside and his ability to really compete with the top dogs, because, I mean, if we look at it right now, um, where he's at, just among rookies, you know, out of 17 rookies that have played uh, so far, rookie wide receivers, he is fourth in in receptions. He had four receptions week one and two receptions week three. You know, again, he wasn't given a prominent role until just this past week. You've got other guys that he's competing with, like Drake London, Chris Olave, and Garrett Wilson that have been like number one, number two wide receivers since day one. Romeo's been held back, and he's number four in receptions behind these first round picks. Remember, Drake London was picked number eight overall. Garrett Wilson was ranked or uh, taken 10th overall. Chris Olave was 11th overall. And right now, that's his competition. Because after that, it drops to nine. Jahan Dotson. Yards, he's got a little ways to go. Um, the rest of these guys are in the 200s. But again, he hasn't had that big shot yet, mostly because of the pressure and everything else, not because of an inability. But he's still fourth in yards. I mean, the, the other guys are in the 200s. Chris Olave, 268. Drake London and Garrett Wilson at 214. Romeo Dobbs, 137. But again, he's fourth in yards. And he is one of, he only has the one touchdown, but only four receivers of all the rookies even have touchdowns. Jahan Dotson has three. Drake London has two. Garrett Wilson has two. Romeo Dobbs has one. That's it. And just to remind you of some of the guys that are on this list, first of all, Christian Watson. Granted, uh, Christian hasn't played as much and only had kind of one quote-unquote prominent day, considering he was kind of blackballed after, after that play in week one. But, you know, George Pickens has five receptions for 64 yards or 65 yards and no touchdowns. Alec Pierce has three receptions for 61 yards and no touchdowns. Sky Moore has one reception for 30 yards. That guy was the most elite dominant player we've ever seen in training camp history. It was basically a guarantee that that guy was going to light up everything. One target, one reception, 30 yards. Wandale Robinson, one target, uh, one reception, five yards. He's only played the one game so far, and I don't know if he's playing right now. The Monday night game is on right now, so maybe he's had a little bit more, but these are, these are pretty big names, man, and that doesn't even include the guys that were drafted before him, around him, slightly after him that aren't even playing. Again, only 14 rookies receivers are even taking snaps right now. Oh, Traylon Burks, eight receptions, 115 yards. Not too far behind, but less receptions, less yards, and no touchdowns. Khalil Shakir, another guy that was blowing up all through training camp. Fifth round pick, but close enough. Um, two targets, zero receptions. David Bell is a third round pick. Two targets, 12 receptions, no touchdowns. Danny Gray was a third round pick. Two targets, zero receptions. So, um, yeah, the, the um, you know, just even looking at the grades, he's the fourth highest grade among receivers, 73.7. And as I told you, rookies generally, you know, you're not seeing massively high grades. So 
I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm back in on the, on the hype train. I'm still not off the Christian Watson thing. He's just got to get back healthy and, and kind of get one of those types of opportunities because like many people have said, and have kind of known all along, it's not about his lack of ability. It's just opportunity. They just need to give him opportunity. And he was kind of forced into a role this, this game this past week with the opportunities and it produced. And again, I think Watson would do the same thing if they would just give him the opportunity. So a couple other interesting little stats. This is the second best start from a defensive standpoint in the Aaron Rodgers era. 2019 was the only one in which they had allowed less points through the first three weeks. So a great start for them. Another fun little nugget that I found. Um, Chicago Bears have attempted to pass the ball 45 times so far this year. The last time a team had done that in the first three weeks was 1982, the New England Patriots. Only seven times in NFL history since the Super Bowl era has a team only had 45 point, uh, 45 passing attempts in the first three weeks and not since 1982. I mean, think about that. If you go back to the 80s, the entire decade of the 80s, all the teams that were in the NFL through the 80s. So every single team times 10 years once in the 80s. If you go back through the entire span of the 70s, I don't know how many teams are in the 70s, but take however many teams there are times 10 years. You know how many times a team did that? Three. And then er, mm, four times. Once in the 60s, also Chicago. One time in 67. I think the Super Bowl era starts in like 66, but still. Imagine that. 1966, 1968, 1969, 1970, 1971. Not a single team back then had this few pass attempts. And I don't want to hear about a stupid tsunami or whatever nonsense. Here's where I'm at with this. And I know Bears fans aren't going to buy it because they still think, well, it's only been 13 games, which is hilarious because how many starts has Jordan Love had? Anyways, um, it's only been two years and 13 games, and uh, that's not enough time to evaluate a quarterback. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Let me, let me paint you a picture here, okay? We'll use this as a segue to talk about some of the other teams and what we've seen throughout the league and where these teams are at. The Chicago Bears were a terrible team when it came to drafting talent. They didn't do it very often, and when they did, they didn't do a great job. One of the people they drafted was Justin Fields. Justin Fields played about half the year as a rookie, and he graded out as one of the worst quarterbacks in the entire NFL. They fired the head coach. They fired the GM for what a terrible job they did. Then they went out and hired a new coach. Coach hired a whole new staff, and then they went out and got a guy by the name of Ryan Poles. They asked the McCaskies, will you hire a GM and a coach that will commit to Justin Fields? The answer, essentially, was no. And the fact that the media was asking is, in and of itself is hilarious because they were angry. They knew that Justin Fields was the guy. Don't you dare hire somebody that won't commit to stacking talent around this guy and making him the, the superstar that we know that he is going to be. McCaskey essentially said, no, we will not hire a guy that will commit to Justin Fields. That is to say, if he comes in and says, I couldn't give two craps about that guy. That's not my pick. I'm going to build the team my way and all this stuff. I don't care. That's fine because we want a good team, not somebody that is beholden to the last administration's terrible decisions, which is the right decision, by the way. Pauls comes in, was essentially asked the same thing. Are you going to commit to Justin Fields? No, he's not committed to anybody. He, he's letting everybody go that wants to go. He doesn't care. Wouldn't pay Roquan. Akeem Hicks is gone. Khalil Mack is gone. All the decisions the old administration made are gone. We're not focused on the past. We're focused on building in the future. This is the right strategy, by the way. Then the draft comes around. Is he going to do right by his offense and build around the offense, this terrible offensive line, the terrible wide receivers, the terrible tight end, although everybody said Cole Komet is great. I'm sure Poles had the foresight and the NFL acumen to assess the situation and say, actually, this guy is garbage. But did he, did he attempt to fix any of that? No, he did not. He went and tried to get defensive players. You know why? Because I couldn't care less about trying to protect Justin Fields and make the last GM look like a genius. I'm going to take the best player available, and it happened to be defensive players, and that's what I'm going to do, and that is the right decision. Now, this year... We have a situation where Justin Fields is somehow worse than he was last year. 
He had the excuse week one because it was raining, although that's a nonsense excuse because, again, it's hilarious. Go on Twitter right now and find the Justin Fields highlights. You know what you won't see? Rain. You don't see rain in a lot of these highlights from week one. You know why? Because it really wasn't raining until the fourth quarter when the game was already put away. So it was the excuse that was made. Then week two rolled around. He was terrible. And week three might have been the worst of all of it. And the reason I say that is because I watched a game by the Chicago Bears in which it was, it didn't matter if it was third and four, third and two, third and nine, or third and 15, they were running the ball. They will not allow Justin Fields to throw the ball. The head coach, imagine you're the GM and you're working with your coach and you're trying to evaluate talent. You're trying to put the best guys out there. Again, Tevin Jenkins was on the verge of being cut. And then they're like, all right, let's try him at guard. Kind of works out. And they're like, all right, let's see how this works. He doesn't care that they traded up for Tevin Jenkins. He was seconds, millimeters away from being cut or traded or whatever. And now he is the GM of a team in which his own head coach will not put the ball in his own quarterback's hands. If you think for one second that his staff is not working real hard on quarterbacks, you are out of your mind. He doesn't care about Justin Fields. If he happens to be a great pick and a great player, just like everybody else, if you're a really, yeah, Jalen Johnson, he's not going anywhere. He's a good young player. David Montgomery, we'll see. There's a contract coming up, whether he decides to pay a running back or not. That's sort of a separate discussion, but you know, good talent, Darnell Mooney, I mean, he's off to a terrible start, but more than likely he's going to end up staying. Can't really think of any other examples, but I'm I'm sure there's a couple out there somewhere. We'll see what happens. But at this particular point in time, if the Bears are drafting really early and I expect them to be, they nearly lost to the Texans. I really think they should have, and I wish they would have. But at the same time, I'm glad they didn't, because if they end up getting a top three pick, they end up getting a maybe a good quarterback. It'd be hilarious if they take Stroud, another Ohio State guy. But if they're picking like 10, 11, 12, like last time, you probably could get a quarterback or you could do like you do every single time. You trade away everything you got to go up and get a quarterback and watch it just fail miserably. Or you just sit there and take a pass rusher or an offensive tackle and you ride with Justin Fields off into the depths, into the depths of despair because it's bad. Again, the fact that they will not allow the man to throw is staggering to me. I mean, I think I'm looking, trying to look at it. I think maybe he completed three passes on third downs for for first downs, maybe it's two. Let's run through it real quick. Sacked by Jerry Hughes. These are all the third down plays. Sack, uh, kneel for minus one yards. Penalty, sacked. Uh, interception. Uh, third and one, they ran the ball. Third and six, they ran the ball. Third and ten, they ran the ball. Third and four, Justin Fields ran the ball. Third and 16, he completed a seven-yard pass. So he didn't complete that one. Third and one, obviously, they ran the ball. Third and 17, they ran the ball, got 10 yards. And then you got um, third and nine, he ran the ball. And then there's two plays here. Third and five, he completed a pass to Cole Komet for 24 yards. Third and six, he completed a pass to Cole Komet for 16 yards. Two times, two times out of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, out of 14 attempts, he completed... Two passes to convert a first down. No wonder. But again, the fact that on a third and 10, they're running the ball. And that's the first quarter. Game's just getting started. And you're already third and 10, like, eh, just run it. Third and six in your own territory, you run the ball for two yards. Third and six. My favorite, though, is third and 17. It's crazy. Anyways, uh, again, want to take this time. We don't have to go through every team. Uh, We'll hit on the important ones, and then if there's any other thoughts on any of the teams the Chicago Bears are a disaster I don't think there's any question about that there are certain things that are that are seemingly better than expected their run game is is actually quite impressive I know Houston is terrible at stopping the run but the fact that you knew with 100% certainty they were going to run the ball because they just refused to let Fields pass the ball and you still couldn't stop it um that speaks fairly highly of the Bears run game. The problem is they're not going to be able to do that every week. Eventually they're going to run into teams that are like, all right, you're going to have to throw it. They're going to stack the box and they're not going to let them run the ball. And it's just going to be a disaster. And it is, they're, they're a disaster of a football team. Um, they did beat the Texans. They maybe will beat the giants. I really don't think they beat the Vikings. I know I said that about the lions. So maybe I shouldn't say it so confidently, but that's in Minnesota. I don't think so. I don't think they beat Washington. I don't know about New England. These are not hard teams. Dallas, they probably won't because I think their quarterback will be back. Miami will beat them. Detroit will beat them. Atlanta might beat them. The Jets, these teams all suck. Man, that makes me so angry. (laughs) Then the Packers are going to smoke them. 
Then they get a bye week. They're going to lose to Philly. They're going to lose to Buffalo. They're going to lose to Detroit. And they're probably going to lose to Minnesota again. They'll lose all the way down the stretch there. But at the very least, the Bears are what we thought they were. Everything else is so weird right now, but the Bears 100% are what we thought they were. Detroit is a little bit surprising, but not quite as much. I, I wasn't entirely wrong last week when I said they were going to come back down to earth. They're not going to be able to maintain 35 points a game like they did against Philly and like they did against Washington, and they didn't. They only scored 24 points, as I expected. The surprising thing to me, though, is maybe their defense. It's just, it's not a good defense, but it's maybe not quite as bad as I thought. I mean, granted, 38, 27, 28 is not good, but it kind of got me thinking maybe they're not as horrible. But here's the, the bigger takeaway. Vikings offense is not good. It's just not. They rank 17th right now. This is supposed to be the most potent, uh, just insane, blow everybody out of the water team in football. And here's the deal. You go up against a bad defense in Detroit, right? Again, they're, they're not as bad as I thought, like worst in the NFL, which is, you know, a step up, but they're still bad. You only managed 28 against a bad Detroit Lions team. You only managed 23 against a Green Bay Packers team that, again, completely fell on their face. And then you go up against Philly and you only score seven. This offense is disjointed and it looks bad. Do you remember what I said before the season started about the Minnesota Vikings? Why do we assume they're going to get better? New doesn't mean better. You have an entire team that is based on the old way of doing things. Kirk Cousins is a play-action style guy. Put him under center. Play action. Number one play action quarterback in football. And now you're going to put him in the shotgun and spread everybody out. And, and, and we're sure that this is going to be better because, because of scheme. I'm not saying that the offense isn't going to pick it up at some point, but this offense is not great. Do you know Justin Jefferson? After that week one, 91 overall grade, 184 yards, all that stuff, two touchdowns. You know what he's done the last couple weeks? First of all, he is, he is ranked, Justin Jefferson is, um, in this new elite unstoppable offense he is ranked where is he at let me see here really quickly 44th 44th ranked wide receiver because in week two against philly he got a 63 overall grade 12 targets six receptions 48 yards you know what he did last week against detroit detroit five targets three receptions 14 yards that's it he had an elite week one, and he has a 68.5 overall grade right now. Weird, right? So this is, this is a situation. This is maybe the tightest the NFC North has ever been. I think Chicago is, is very clearly fourth. I don't care what the records say. I, I, think it's, I think the Packers are on top, but I also think the Packers are still kind of... They got some stuff to work out. They need more consistency from the receivers. They need better blocking from the offensive line. Um, and, and, you know they can get a little bit more consistent weaponry on offense, I think they'll be okay. But there's still questions. I think the Vikings are second. Very close game against Minnesota, but I just think they're a better team. They, they just haven't figured it out. Detroit is a team that is playing at 100%. They just don't have a lot of weapons. Detroit has the weapons, not, not as stacked as everybody said, but they're operating at about 60%. They're not doing what they need to do. And Chicago's a joke. Then you've got our competitors, right? You've got, um, for example, the NFC West. These are the guys that are going to be battling for the uh, NFC titles and all that stuff. LA Rams right now. This is another team where, you know, similar to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, everybody looks at 2020 and assumes they're the same team as, as they were in 2020. Um, remember, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, number one run defense in 2020, and everybody thinks that's what they are today. 2020, the Rams were the most elite defense in football. All their staff got hired off to be defensive coordinators, including Joe Barry. As of right now, probably because their entire staff got purged, 15th offense, 20th on defense in terms of points. They are 2-1, and one, but they got absolutely annihilated by Buffalo. I said Atlanta would be a get-right game, and it kind of was, but they only beat them 27-31. That was a very close game. And then the next week, you beat the Arizona Cardinals, and it was because of a great defensive performance where you only allowed 12 points, which is great but you only scored 20. So defensively, you've had two bad games. Offensively, you've had two bad games. And you haven't had one game where the offense and defense both played a good game, right? Atlanta was your one good offensive game, scoring 31 points. Arizona's the one good defensive game, allowing 12 points. So they're not really massively scary to me right now. Arizona right now has the 31st ranked defense in football. They allowed 44 points in week one. 
Now, they kind of picked it back up. They allowed 23 points to the Raiders, which isn't great, considering the Raiders are not a good football team. But still, that's fine. And then 20 to the Rams, which again is good. But you only scored 21 points week one and 12 points week two. And your only win of the season is an overtime win over the Raiders. You had to go to overtime with the Raiders. That's a problem. Seattle is in shambles. 28th ranked offense in terms of points, 27th in terms of yards. Defense is 20th in terms of points, 25th in terms of yards. Best game offensively was against the Falcons. They scored 23 points. Remember, in my mind, 24 is just sort of like that zero point. If you score less than that, that's not good. If you score more than that, then that's, that's good to varying degrees. They don't have a single game where they got the 24 points. Defensively, the only impressive game was week one against the Denver Broncos. You allowed 16. You're 0-2 the last two weeks. And then the 49ers, I don't know what to think of the 49ers. Week one, they lost to the Bears, and I said, well, it was a you know, slop fest, which makes it hard on the pass rusher. Not necessarily the quarterbacks, but you know the, the, the pass rusher. Guys that have to use their feet more. And then there was no ability for a fourth quarter comeback because it was a deluge in the fourth quarter. But, but the biggest thing was you had Trey Lance. And then Jimmy Garoppolo comes back week two. You beat Seattle 27-7, to right back on track. Then you go to Denver. Jimmy Garoppolo is like the worst quarterback I've ever seen in my life. And you score 10 points. You lose 11-10, to which I've never seen that score in my life. But there you go. You lose 11-10 to to the Denver Broncos. So they suck. <laughs> the defense is ranked uh, third in terms of points. The 19 points to the Bears is the most they've given up, which makes me sick to my stomach. But they have the 28th ranked offense. And I can't even blame it on Trey Lance because you scored 10 points in weeks one and three. Look at the NFC South, which has been scary at, at different points in time. We just beat Tampa. We know their offense is no good. Highest points they've scored all year is 20. And of course, they just scored 12 this past week. So as good as your defense is, you know, they gave up 14 to the Packers. That's the most they've given up all year. That's really impressive and all. But uh, your offense is, is garbage. Falcons are kind of like the Lions of the NFC North, uh, South. Got a lot, of, a lot of grit, but not a lot of talent. Their uh, only win came against the Seattle Seahawks, and that was by four points. They lost to the Rams, lost to the Saints. Carolina Panthers are a complete joke. I mean, they just beat the Saints 22-14, which doesn't speak very highly of the Saints, who have also only won one game. Has anybody won two games? <laughs> what the heck is this? Somebody had to have. But you lost to the Browns and the Giants and beat the Saints. Highest points you've scored, the Carolina Panthers, 24. Uh, and then, you know, the Saints, again, they won against the Falcons barely by one point, and then they lost to the Buccaneers, and they lost to the Panthers. Look at Washington, one of the worst defenses in football. Gave up 36 to the Lions, 24 to the Eagles, 22 to the Jaguars. Then the offense seemed to be kind of on a decent track with 28 and 27. You scored eight points against the Eagles. Philadelphia is the one scary team, I think, in the NFC right now. And again, they played the Lions, who are, you know, pretty subpar. Washington is pretty subpar. And Minnesota, who you got to kind of wonder, maybe isn't that great. And by the way, this elite Eagles offense scored 38 against the Lions. They only managed 24 against the Vikings and 24 against the Commanders. That's not great against, you know, two teams with pretty bad defenses, right? I just told you Washington is one of the worst defenses in football. Then you're looking at Dallas and the Giants, who are currently playing right now. I'm watching a 6-3 to football game between the 1-1 one and one Dallas Cowboys, who uh, barely beat the Bengals by three and got smoked by Tampa Bay, going up against the 2-0 and o Giants, who managed to beat the Titans, who were really struggling, and the Carolina Panthers, who are also a terrible football team, uh, scoring 21 and 19 points. And so, you know, again, like I mentioned before, I just, somebody's going to emerge, but usually it starts early. You know, there's a bunch of powerhouse teams, and then some of them kind of level off. I just, I'm not seeing it, man. I don't know who to get excited about. I mean, Buffalo kind of had their their moment where they had to come back down to reality. You know, they blew guys out 31 to 10, 41 to 7, and then lost 19 to 21. Now, if you know, maybe they just have a couple down games and they'll get right back on track. I know they're going to be a good football team, but how good, you know? And, and again, that's sort of the issue. And that's what I said about them being unlikely to win a Super Bowl last year. Is there a team that far too frequently just lays an egg? Well, it's about consistency in the playoffs. Are we going to be really big on, on Miami? I guess they're 3-0. and They beat Buffalo. They beat the Ravens. These are two kind of powerhouse teams. They smoked the Patriots. I guess their defense is ranked 31st in yards. That's not super great. 16th in points. They're eighth on offense, so they're not necessarily dominant in any one category. Jaguars are getting a ton of hype because, you know, their quarterback's kind of figuring it out, but it's still the Jaguars. I don't know. I mean, I guess the last two weeks, 24-0 and 38-10, that's pretty impressive. I don't know. 
The only other somewhat decent teams are the Baltimore Ravens. Um, offense seems to be really clip, clipping along at a high pace. Number one scoring offense right now the last two weeks, 38 and 37 points. Defense nowhere near as impressive, giving up 42 and 26 the last two weeks, actually losing to Miami, scoring 38. And again, Kansas City, they, they just got beat by the Colts. So I don't know. I mean, the, team, it's, the good thing is the Packers are doing enough to find ways to win. We do have the one loss, but this is the time of year where teams are just trying to figure stuff out. And, you know, we overreact to everything. You know, the Chiefs were considered a powerhouse before they just lost. Buffalo was a powerhouse. Miami was a joke. Right now they're 3-0. and um, The Jaguars were, the, were a joke. Now all of a sudden they're a big deal. Uh, you know, Kansas City, the Chargers, the Raiders were going to be like a big deal because they got all this firepower. They got all these guys. They got Devontae and the whole, the whole thing. And they're 0-3. And Devontae's not doing anything out there right now. He's, again, compared to like Romeo Dobbs, he's, they're like on the exact same level right now. Um, so... A, a, a ton of things are still being sorted out. We overreacted prior to the season to nonsense. Then week one happened. We overreacted too much, right? Detroit has an elite offense. Maybe they do. I don't know. Minnesota has an elite offense. The Packers don't have any weapons, all this stuff. Then week two happens. We overreact in a completely different direction. The fact of the matter is it's week three, and we just still don't know what exactly is going on. And a lot of the things we're seeing that we've changed our mind about three different times already is still going to change. And that's true of the Packers as well, just like after week one. Well, I guess our defense isn't that good. Well, I guess our special teams are still garbage. Well, I guess people were right about our weapons. All that stuff, right? Week 17 is a long way away. Week 18, you know, playoffs, there's a lot of time. But right now, I'm just watching a lot of really bad football. A lot of guys really just trying to figure things out. And I think it's the more experienced teams that have been together a long time, like Kansas City and even Buffalo that are kind of coming out of the gate pretty hot. You know, some of these other teams are, you know, even the Vikings, you know, they seem like they came out of the gate hot week one, but it's more of the Packers failing than anything else. They're a new team. They don't know what the heck they're doing. The Bears, they, they don't know what they're doing. It's a whole new staff, whole new everything. But things will start to normalize as we move forward. So anyways, that's it. I'm out of here. You guys have yourselves a fantastic day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.